everyone and welcome to today's ELT CPD podcast and the second in our ELT buzzword series. Today we'll be speaking about adaptive learning with teacher, teacher trainer and well-known materials writer Philip Kerr. Hi Philip, how are you? Hi, I'm, I'm okay and you? Yeah, good, good, thank you. Thanks so much for it's coming. It's a bit hot here actually, it's 36 degrees at the moment in Vienna. Is it? Oh no, it's horrible and muggy and humid here today in the England so not good um so yeah thanks so much for coming on the show uh, so maybe we can start by hearing a little bit about yourself who you are and what you do okay well I mean I'm a teacher trainer and I've been a teacher trainer for many years now I, d- I don't know exactly how many 30 or something like that 35 mm-hmm. uh, but in addition to the teacher training work that I do I'm a writer and I do two kinds of writing I write course books I've written quite a lot of course books over the years yeah. uh, books like um inside out and straightforward and more recently uh, a series for Cambridge called Evolve and another series for Helbling Publishers called Studio. So I write course books and, and material of that kind, but I also write methodology books and papers. Okay. Um, and perhaps the, the, the thing that I'm most well known for is a book I wrote for Cambridge uh, on the use of L1 in mm-hmm. language teaching about 10 years ago now, something like that. So that's what I do. I, I, I'm a trainer and, and a writer. Perfect. So where, because you have a blog on adaptive learning, so where did your interest in that sort of field come in? The uh, Well, the interest in, in adaptive learning came as a result of a course book project. So this is about 12 or 13 years ago, and um, I was involved in a course book project for Macmillan. Okay. And Macmillan had, um, had signed, uh, at the time, recently signed a contract with an adaptive software provider called Newton, mm-hmm. uh, K-N-E-W. Uh, T-O-N. And Newton had uh, had been pushing very, very hard uh, to sell adapt what they called adaptive solutions for language learning. And they had contracts with Macmillan and with Cambridge and Pearson were also involved. In fact, Pearson had a, a shareholding in this company. Mm-hmm. And so I was involved in this coursebook project. And the, the idea would be that it would be uh, delivered online. And the the technology behind it, what would differentiate it from anything else would be the adaptive technology. Okay. So that's how it all started. And was that the first sort of platform that integrated adaptive technology? Was well, it didn't. Um, <laughs> we'll get on to this. It, the, the, the plan had been to. What actually happened was that um, Macmillan spent so much money developing their platform that they ran out of money to spend any or to invest anything on the materials development itself. <laughs> okay. So, so the project um, actually came to an end, and it came to an end partly because there were funding issues, but also three or four years down the line, I think uh, people had realized that adaptive solutions weren't really solutions to anything at all. They raised more problems mm-hmm. than they provided solutions to other things. Okay. So the, the contracts between Macmillan and Newton and between Newton and Cambridge and Pearson all came to an end. And mm-hmm. these really, I mean, these, we're talking about multi, multi, multi-million pound investments. Um, all of these came to an, well, more or less came to an end uh, and people became much more, are much less ambitious in what they were trying to achieve. So there isn't uh, one very big, very well-known international language learning platform which is using adaptive technology at the moment. There are lots of small things, um, which we'll get onto. But um, the, the, these big attempts to have the, the big battleship course with adaptive te- technology simply didn't work out in the end. And was that just because of the money that they didn't have to build out the platform with the content? Or do you think there were other problems as well? Um, no, there were, there were other problems. I mean, the, the, one, of the, one of the things going on in publishing language 
learning materials publishing at the moment is that more and more people involved in this world um, have technological expertise but have very little background in language learning. Mm-hmm. They don't actually know very much about language learning very often. And so the, the decisions at the time were being driven by people who had these technological interests, but they hadn't really thought through what this actually meant in terms of language learning. Yeah. Um, so there are there are fundamental problems. Well, perhaps we should go back and explain what, what adaptive learning is. Yes, I was about to say, maybe we can define what adaptive learning is. Okay, so we're talking, we're talking about uh, learning materials that are delivered on a platform online. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the, the standard way, I suppose, of going about this, you look at almost any platform that all of the major publishers are now using, and you have a series of exercises, grammar, vocabulary, reading, etc. Um, and you click through the exercises and then you move on to the next one. So it's a very linear progression. Mm-hmm. And there is a there there was and there is a realization this linear progression through the material is problematic because it doesn't suit everybody to work in the same way. Every class, almost by definition, has a range of abilities, a range of interests. Mm-hmm. So why should anybody work through a pile of material in the same order as everybody else? Why 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 should somebody who's very good have to go through the same old stuff as somebody who's really quite weak? So the idea is that um, technology can be leveraged to provide a more personalized route through the learning material. So on, on, on at, at the most basic level, uh, when you do a particular exercise, how well you do that exercise will determine what happens next. So you don't all follow the same pattern. Okay. So mm-hmm. I mean, a really simple example of this is with, um, with flashcards for vocabulary learning, mm-hmm. things like Quizlet or Memorize or something like that. You don't, you don't have the same series of exercises presented to every learner. It depends. What comes next depends on how well you've done the exercise before. Yeah. So at the most basic level, how well you perform an exercise determines what you're going to get given next. Okay. okay. So yes. with things like vocabulary flashcards, this is all about the spaced repetition, that the interval between practicing the different sets. This is really quite straightforward. Um, but on a much more sophisticated and ambitious level, um, what the system will do is it will ca- it'll capture the way that you interact with the system, mm-hmm. an individual, and it will get all of this data and it will compare that data with how thousands and thousands and thousands of other students have performed in the same system. Okay. When you have this amount of data, big data we're talking about, huge amounts of data, um, the uh, system employs a, a series of algorithms which analyze this data and we'll make comparisons between an individual performance and group performance. Mm-hmm. Now, the data could be how well you do a particular exercise. It could be um, how long you took to do the exercise. It could be if you make a mistake, what kind of mistake you make. Uh, but the, I, the fundamental idea behind adaptive learning is that the more data you have, the, uh, the more reliable the, the engine is in predicting what is good for you next. And how would they go about gathering that data? Because it well, sounds like a lot is needed. Yeah, we're talking about a lot of data. So on, on a big platform, the first data set that's in there will be the basic demographic information. There'll be information about sex, age, first language, mm-hmm. all this kind of thing. It will capture data because this is already on an administrative system. Yeah. It will have data about how you've performed in previous years, in previous courses. It will have data about how often you log on to the system, the frequency, what time you log on to the system, how long you spend on the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we want to be even more intrusive, we could capture all sorts of other data. Um, there is the technology, for example, um, using the 
camera on, on, on a computer to track the eye movements of students. Oh and by, by tracking the eye movements, we can make some kind of estimate of the degree of engagement that they have with the material that they're being presented with. Mm-hmm. We can capture their emotions, we can capture their engagement and so on. So this is, uh, this is technically possible. We can do this now. There are, of course, big issues about whether we should be doing this. So we're talking exactly. about huge amounts of data. And you want to take it even further. Um, if, you're, if you're using a vocabulary app, a commercial vocabulary app, uh, then this app will carry cookies with it. Mm-hmm. So those cookies will also be tracking what other websites that you go to. So you can build up a very, very big picture of a personal a person's personal interests, their degree of how much they can concentrate in, in a study session, huge amounts of data, bringing up kind of a portrait, a profile of the user in much the same way that, I don't know, something like Amazon does mm-hmm. in order to yeah. provide personalized recommendations. Yeah. So that's, that's what it's all about. I mean, th- there's a big difference between what happens in practice and, and the, the, the potential of it. But that's what adaptive learning is all about. So it's, it's an attempt to personalize learning through uh, an automated analysis of data that's been captured while the student is interacting with the system. You mentioned Quizlet and Memorize. Are there any other examples that we could give for someone just to um, understand it a little bit more, maybe something that they might have used themselves without realising it was adaptive learning? Yeah, I mean, even something like Duolingo has adaptive elements in it because the way that you uh, interact with the Duolingo system is going to determine what happens next. I mean, you have some choice, obviously. You can you can choose your path to some extent. You can, you can yeah. jump a level. You can jump an exercise. But Duolingo is using elements of adaptive technology in there, yes. Okay, excellent. And what, because we we talked about the privacy issue, but first of all, maybe let's talk about the benefits of adaptive learning. In your opinion, what are the advantages of using it? Obviously, you said the personalization of the learning. Is is there anything else? Well, yeah, although I mean, personalization is a rather problematic word because it means lots of different things and different things to different people. Mm -hmm. Um, There there are um, certain benefits, certain sort of self-evident benefits, I mentioned earlier, I referred earlier on to this possibility of determining your own speed mm-hmm. through which, with which you work through a system. So the idea that you can pace yourself, work at your own pace, is something which is intuitively, it, it seems to make sense. I mean, the research is actually less clear than that, although you don't need adaptive technology uh, to yeah. allow for self-pacing. So th- there's that kind of personalization, which seems to make sense. Um, but I, I think more than that, there's... There's the whole issue of what kind of uh, learning exercises do you find interesting? Yeah. There are platforms using video, for example. Mm-hmm. And the, the dashboard of the system offers you a whole range of, of videos that you can watch and, and learn from. And these will be divided into levels. So they're roughly graded in terms of level. And uh, they're also divided into topical categories. So there's, there's sport and there's music and film and, and things like that. And these systems also kind of work in a similar way that the more you use them, the more the system will understand what your personal preferences are. So it can make suggestions mm-hmm. uh, and it can also make suggestions or recommendations about the level that you should go for. Okay. So there's, there's personalization in terms of personal interest, there's personalization in terms of pacing. But I think perhaps the, the, the greatest value, in fact, the only real value in all of these <laughs> systems is addressing the needs of learners with specific learner differences. Mm-hmm. So if, for example, the, the, the system can track that on a particular task type you do much better than on another task type, uh, it will give you more of the task type that you do better or you learn okay. better from. Now, I mean, really, you know, in a very crude sense, if someone has got, um, let's say, hearing difficulties, 
then an adaptive system can push them much more rapidly towards uh, options, let's say, uh, including subtitles mm-hmm. they can learn from. So adaptivity could uh, go quite a long way in, in helping people with specific learner differences. But beyond that, um, I'm not convinced of any great value at all. Really? That surprises me. Yeah, well, but, but the reason is actually is, is to do with the theories of language learning. When we talk about vocabulary flashcards or grammar flashcards, it, it's quite easy to personalize it. Yeah. Because it's easy, the technology captures that data more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And we also know that when students are learning online on platforms, they tend to do, they tend to spend far more of their time doing the gap fills and all of this kind of stuff than they do on the discussion forum or, or yeah. writing things. Mm-hmm. So they, they tend to spend most of their time doing the things which lead to fewer learning gains. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the value of, of grammar gap fill is, is really very limited. Students may enjoy doing it, but it, it isn't really going to take them very far forward. Mm-hmm. Personalizing that kind of approach to learn, it's, it's like, you know, I think still one of the biggest selling books in the world is English Grammar in Use, the Raymond Murphy series, and the English Vocabulary Use, these, these series. But these are, these are books which are designed for deliberate, intentional learning. And we do know that uh, a much more powerful way of acquiring a language is through using language. It's through reading and listening and writing and, and, and speaking and so on. But because the skills work is much harder to measure and capture the data with, adaptive learning tends to focus on this testing and practice testing of grammatical knowledge, grammar McNuggets, vocabulary and so on, and, and much less on language production, which mm-hmm. requires technologically much, much more sophisticated tools, uh, which we're yeah. not really there with. So my, my issue with adaptive learning is that in practice, you have system, let's say Duolingo or something like that. What you have is a more adaptive and personalized version of English grammar in use. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that that's what we should be encouraging our students to do in the first place. Okay. That's, that's so, really the, the bottom line. Yeah, and, and you know, rather than having an adaptive system for for grammar practice, most students would be much better off spending the time, I don't know, watching some subtitle videos or, or reading something. Hmm. You know, and with, with the activities that you mention, obviously there are some like obviously there's automated grading. Okay, so you've got your maybe your open close or your multiple choice, and then the activities are adapted or adapted to you based on what you answer or how you answer or the speed you answer, for example. So could there be something like writing a short paragraph or speaking? Because Duolingo, I think you just speak a sentence or a word, don't mm-hmm. you? Yeah. Would there be a longer um, speaking activity or writing activity? Would you find that on an adaptive learning platform or not really? There are claims that, uh, that, that, that this is being done, although I've not seen anything which is doing it effectively. The, the, the problem mm-hmm. here is, is, is with the technology that's needed. Okay. So if, 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 if a learner is being asked to write even a paragraph of eight to ten lines, yeah. the, the, the system needs to automatically evaluate in some way the quality of what they're writing. Yeah. This requires uh, natural language processing technology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this, this is getting better. It's getting better all of the time. It's the sort of language, uh, the sort of technology that's used in, in voice assistance, Alexa and Siri and things like that, how it understands what it is you're saying. Yeah. But the challenges are much, much greater when it comes to people using English as another language. Mm-hmm. Because how does the system know that they've made a mistake or not? That, that, yeah. that really is the big challenge. And, and there are some good examples of that. There's a, there's a, a program called Write and Improve uh, produced by Cambridge. I think it's marketed by Cambridge now. Um, which does this kind of automated analysis of, of students' writing. And they had, a, they had a beta version for speaking, but that's even harder. 
how do you mm. differentiate all the different accents? Yeah, exactly. But in order for this technology to work, um, the technology has to be trained in what we call trained. It has to be trained on a database. So you can have um, you can have automated evaluation um, of text so long as the topic of the text is fairly constrained mm-hmm. and and the system has been trained on it. So you could imagine, for example, that with a with a predictable essay writing topic from, let's say, an IELTS examination or something like that, that you could train a system on this and it would be able to recognize the errors and, and the examples of good language. But mm-hmm. we're simply not really there with the, the technology yet, with natural language processing. It's why we can't we can't really talk about chatbots at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, chatbots are fine for about two exchanges. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but beyond two exchanges, the, the chatbot has really no understanding of what's being said. I mean, if it doesn't understand what's being said, then it can't begin to offer language feedback. So there, there, there are claims that we'll get there. Um, but in order for us to get there, we need artificial general intelligence Mm-hmm. And we have only very specific, limited kinds of artificial intelligence working. And will general intelligence ever be there? Will, you know, there's this Turing test. Can a computer c- convince other people that they're actually a human? Um, probably not. There are all sorts of reasons why not, but but probably not. So, yeah, th- th- there are these technological challenges in more open-ended language production, and we're not close to solving them yet. So in the meantime, you know, we have lots of gap fills and drag and drops, mm-hmm. matching tasks. And that's, you know, you look at you look at any platform. I mean, even uh, the courses that I've been involved in recently, like Evolve, uh, the Cambridge course, which was designed to be totally blendable, flexible in any way, completely book or completely online or any combination. Mm. But the the majority of the online material there that students actually do is of a very controlled develop your language knowledge. Okay. So what are the downsides to it? I mean, we've touched on some of them, the privacy and obviously the speaking and writing aspect of it, but are there any other downsides that you see to it? The, the privacy issue um, is is a big one, but it's not really a big one at the moment because things are, you know, most systems, most LMSs are not capturing the kinds of things that you do out of the system. Although the claim is, of course, that the predictions would be better if we were capturing that information, and that's when the privacy issues become big. So privacy is, is potentially an issue, but I, I don't think it's too much of an issue at the moment. I, I think the bigger issue is that the technology um, is pushing us into a, a focus on language teaching, which is more to do with the deliberate study of language knowledge, grammar and vocabulary, and less to do with communicative use of language. So for me, that's the kind of the, the, the biggest downside. Yeah. There, is, there is another downside too, and that is... Um, when you're studying on a platform as a student or as a college, you buy a license. You don't actually have the physical book. And this is an advantage for the publishers mm-hmm. uh, because they'll sell the license at a price which is comparable to the book. But you don't actually then get to keep it afterwards. So everything is about how you interact with the platform. That's great for the publishers. But I'm not sure that it's necessarily uh, advantageous to learners who often want to keep their books. So there, there, is a, there is a commercial angle here, too, which is worth thinking about. And at the moment, do you think these adaptive courses, the, the only one that sort of springs to mind for me is like with Pearson, they have their My English Lab. Yes. And, and they come with courses. So are those the only ones that exist at the moment or are there standalone sort of EFL platforms without a course book component as well? Yes, there are, but I'm not sure to what extent they're adaptive. It's very difficult to get into mm. it. People are using the term adaptive as a, as a marketing tool. I mean, the, the, the Pearson example is, is quite a good one. This is perhaps another example of the downsides. If you have a system which has to determine the level of difficulty of a task and how well you can cope with it, you have to have another system which uh, stipulates that this 
learning item, a word or a meaning of a word or a structure or a phrase is at a particular level. Mm-hmm. And Pearson does this using the global scale of English. So every single learning item, which we're talking about grammar and vocabulary, is, is allocated a, a level on the global scale of English. This means that if you're writing, and it's not just Pearson because the other publishers are doing the same things and often using similar scales. This means if you're writing, let's say, a, a B2 or a B, let's say a B1 book or a B1 plus book, that you can only include the language which is tagged as being at that level. And, and this is this is clearly a nonsense because we know that it doesn't work like that. You know, you don't, you can't say that one word corresponds to one level. It, it's not as simple as that. There are degrees of knowing a word. There are degrees of knowing a structure. So the the, the need to have everything fitted out with a level label forces the material writers to produce material that is considered to be at that level, and we have a circular process. So I'm not I'm not saying that these scales are of no value at all. I find them extremely useful to refer to, but when when the scale is needed for an adaptive system, then it forces materials writers and course developers into using uh, these tags when they don't really mean very much at all. They're, they're rough guides, rules of thumb, yeah. that's all. Yeah. And if the point of adaptive learning is to increase, not the point of it, but if it's to increase the challenge, if you're mapping something to be one, how can you increase the challenge? Would that be through the activity type? Because it wouldn't be the language if it's all mapped to the same CFR level. Well, yes, I mean... It- isn't there no reason, of course, why everyone following a B1 course is being presented with B1 material all of the time? Because if they're doing yeah. well, they can be given more challenging thing. But the, the, the much more interesting potential is in tweaking a task so that a task is more challenging, whether it's cognitively more challenging or linguistically more challenging. But it's very, very difficult to measure the difficulty of a task. We, we can predict to some extent. Um, but, you know, what, what you might find easy uh, and what I might find easy as a task, let's say a speaking task, it's going to depend on our background knowledge, our background interests, on all sorts of real-world expertise, which can't yeah. be predicted in advance. But there are frameworks for evaluating the complexity of a task. But the problem here, I suppose, is that task-based learning um, is not something which lends itself easily to measurable outcomes. Mm-hmm. You know, a task-based approach acknowledges that different learners will learn different things, that the input that they receive will not correlate to the uptake of whatever it is. So task-based learning doesn't sit very easily with adaptive uh, approaches, which is a pity because we end up, as I say, with just lots of gap fills. Exactly, yeah. When I think about adaptive learning, I think perhaps it might be useful in placement tests or testing specifically. Would you agree? Yes, I would. Testing, I think, is is rather different. Um, In Mm -hmm. in a sense, the way I've described my my, my take on adaptive learning is, is that it is fundamentally a series of practice tests. That's really yeah. what it boils down to. Yeah. It could be more than that, but it is a series of practice tests. And the, the most frequent uh, use of adaptive technologies these days is in testing. Whether mm-hmm. it's placement testing or proficiency testing, um, it doesn't really matter uh, because the advantage of the adaptive technology is that the test can be done much more quickly, mm-hmm. much more efficiently than if it's done on paper and everyone has to do the same things. So, I mean, the um, one of the most well-known placement tests is the Oxford placement test. And in the old days, the Oxford placement test consisted of uh, two, two papers. I think it was two papers. One was a sort of multiple choice, a testing structure and lexical knowledge, and the other was a listening test. Mm-hmm. Um, but it meant that you had to go through this whole damn test, even when your level was C1 or C2, um, and you'd end up with a score of 95%. But you've yeah. wasted all of this time. So for schools who need to do this quickly, uh, adaptive testing is um, 
is clearly desirable. I think it's desirable for, for learners too, and it is now absolutely standard. Uh, mm-hmm. There are very, very few tests which are not adaptive. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that placement tests and proficiency tests are all that reliable, uh, but if we're going to have them, uh, then at least let's make them more efficient. What about sort of maybe the Cambridge suite of tests? I mean, they're not adaptive in themselves. They are specifically designed for a first certificate or advanced certificate. But thinking about um, the PTE, I don't think that's specific to a level. You go in and I think the test is adaptive and adapts to the learner, perhaps. Um, Yeah. But sort of official test, I say. Um, well, okay, I, I, I can only really talk speculatively at this point mm-hmm. about the Cambridge tests. I'm not an insider. Um, I think Cambridge assessment are probably quite worried about their business for the future. Okay. <laughs> the, the idea of doing a test, which it used to be only twice a year, it used to be June and December, and you had to do it in certain places at certain times. And these tests along with, well, let's say Cambridge first uh, five papers, the same with the, some of the others. These are long and expensive tests. And the, the world is moving on. And there are tests now like the Duolingo test, which although I have, I have absolutely no faith in it at all, I think it's a dreadful test, it is, <laughs> it is increasingly being recognized by universities as an indication of language proficiency. Yeah. So they're pushing very hard, um, as are Pearson and other test providers, uh, to provide cheaper uh, and more adaptive tests, which kind of threatens the business model of Cambridge with its main suite exams and with IELTS. So, I, I mean, Cambridge have to be worried about this. And one of the things you may have noticed these days is that with Cambridge, it isn't just that you, let's say you do um, Cambridge first, it'll give you a score or it'll give you a number of scores um, which can go above or beyond the particular level. So they're, they're looking now at a system which um, is is more granular, more like the Pearson test. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess that is going to be the future. And, and so, uh, uh, yes, I mean, adaptive technology is going to help them to do this. So it's, it has been around for quite a while, but perhaps larger publishers haven't really clocked onto it until things like Duolingo are adapting maybe a lot quicker in terms of their technology. Do you think that maybe this is sort of worrying larger publishers? Yes. I mean, there was a time when the bigger publishers just worried about each other. That's simply not yeah. the case anymore. And, you know, in a few weeks ago, Google announced that it was going into the language learning and teaching business as well. Mm-hmm. So if, if it does and, and it just simply becomes another product available um, through the Google suite, then this is clearly something which is worrying the, the big four, the big four publishers. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you look at the biggest markets around the world, China, um, the, the kind of providers of courses, uh, adaptive courses as well, and tests in China. Most of us in Europe have never even heard of these companies. Yeah. They are many, many, many times the size of, of the, the publishers. So the, the, these publishers, CUP, OUP, Pearson, Macmillan, are increasingly worried about how sustainable mm-hmm. their business model is. It, it depends on, on the publisher, but they've all tried to become more agile so they can change things quickly. And we'll see whether they can actually compete or not. But the kind of products that are out there uh, are often easier to develop by startups, mm-hmm. by big organizations yeah. which have to have big funding coming in. Exactly. And there's less sort of hoops to jump through and less people to <laughs> consult to get something signed off perhaps yeah. as well. Um, so as a materials writer, if you were writing something for an adaptive platform, mm-hmm. would you be told about it or would you just be aware that you're writing for an app perhaps or a, a learning software? No, you, 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 you'd have to know about what the platform is and what's possible. As, as a writer, you'd be, given, um, you'd be given a list of the activity types 
Yeah. Um, and these activity types will typically be represented in uh, frames. So you're writing directly into a frame, which means that it can be uploaded into the system much, much more quickly. I mean, it has to be edited clearly, but um, you're going to be writing into these frames and, and a relatively limited number of activity types. Mm -hmm. You can't suddenly think to yourself, wow, I've got, I've got a really good idea of how to do the present perfect. It, it has to be something which is going to fit the system that's there. And the, the, the greater the variety of task types, then the more complicated the system becomes. Mm -hmm. um, bearing in mind, too, that the system is going to be used through uh, Macs and laptops and iPhones and all, all sorts of other devices. So it has to be compatible with all of this. So it's, it's a very, very controlled kind of writing. And, and it normally these days requires you to write straight into a template. And so what tips would you give materials writers or what things should they consider when they're writing for something like that? For example, should they try and picture how it would look on the screen, maybe the word limits or the character limits different perhaps? Yeah, I mean, all of those things will impact on stuff. Um, if you think too, I mean, just, just in terms of using a mobile device, especially a phone, how much will fit on the screen? Mm -hmm. um, so if, if it's a reading task, um, you can't get a whole text on a screen. I mean, this kind of thing. I suppose my biggest advice would be experience it yourself as a learner. Spend plenty of time using some other platform um, as a learner. And if you can't find something like that, then if you're right, if you've been if you've been employed by a publisher, they're probably going to require you to have some experience doing it in the first place. Yeah. But they might take you on to do a little bit here and there to begin with. So yes, yeah, spend as as much time as you can with the platform, trying out all the different exercises, and so you get a feel for what works what could work and, and what is less likely to work. Okay. Um, you're going to have to work fast as well, because we're talking about, you know, if it's a course book and, and there's a grammar section, you may have one and you may be have two practice sections following the presentation. But when you're writing for the platforms, th there's a large amount that needs to be produced and you have to produce it quickly uh, in order for it to be worth your while financially. I mean, with, with a course book, we can spend a long time with the, with a team of writers talking about how we can shape an exercise so that maybe it starts at a gap fill and then there's some personalized discussion which follows it, you know, and what kind of topic and trying it all out. We may even trial it um, with with the class of students, um, but you simply haven't got the time for that kind of thought when, when you're writing this kind of material. No, yeah. definitely not. I remember um, an app a very long time ago that I wrote for. I don't think it was an adaptive technology, but I think I had to write 530 items per level. And I had yep. four levels and I think I had about six weeks. <laughs> so, yeah, there were a lot. There were a lot to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff uh, on social media, especially these days, about how teachers can get into writing. But the, the days of making large amounts of money out of course books um, – they, they seem to be well. I guess a few people can still do quite well. Um, so, I mean, yes, you, you get into this, but bear in mind that this may be the beginning and the end of the type of writing that you're doing. Um, mm -hmm. there's, there's, a, there's a lot going on. Definitely. Um, so let's move on to gamification. First of all, what is gamification? Can you define it? No. Um, <laughs> or, or no and yes. Um, okay. So gamification, the, the usual definition of game, gamification is the use of elements from games to facilitate learning okay. in one kind or one form or another. And fundamentally, this is all about uh, promoting motivation and perhaps to an equal extent, engagement. And how does it link to adaptive learning? Well, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, it, it's um, one of the issues, one of the biggest issues about studying online, whether it's an app or whether it's a platform that you're using, is that it's not terribly motivating to simply interact with the screen all of the time. 
So uh, apps like Duolingo realized very, very early on that the only way they would keep people on board to make the app sticky, as they would say, was to use gamification elements. And, and the things that Duolingo does really, really well are they use things like points and badges and leaderboards and rewards. So you get these credits and you can, I don't know, you can go to the uh, the store in, in the app and, and buy a new outfit for your avatar or or you can... You can buy some credits so that if you miss a day, you don't lose your streak and so on. So these points, badges, and leaderboards are the are the most commonly used elements of gamification in language learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And most platforms will use them in one form or another. So you'll you'll you may not have a leaderboard in terms of comparing the performance of different students in a class or a group, uh, but there'll be something of that kind. Okay. With vocabulary apps, um, which use elements of adaptive technology, it, it's kind of impossible to imagine a vocabulary app which doesn't have these elements of gamification. Mm-hmm. So the idea is, yeah, I mean, the idea is to motivate people to really get going and then to engage and to stay with, with the app or with the platform. And do you think it works that way? No. Well, yes and no. Imagine that you want to develop um, an app for vocabulary learning for younger learners. Mm-hmm. You couldn't really imagine having an app for younger learners without game aspects with badges and, and levels and all the rest of it and rewards. I mean, I, I've been involved in an app recently called Learn Match, uh, which is intended for secondary school learners mostly. And the reward, and it's all about football. The reward system includes things like, I know you, you reach a certain level and then you'll get automatically directed to a fun video of Messi or Mbappe or someone doing some incredible shot. So the, the reward systems like that, they are, it's not conceivable to have a system without that going on. The problem yeah. with this, as we all know, is that the dropout rates are very, very high. So with, I mean, in the higher education, um, online learning is, is becoming bigger and bigger and bigger, and, and the dropout rates are high. And this is a problem not just for the learners, but for the institutions, uh, because their funding may depend on retaining the students that they have. And with, with vocabulary apps, we know that um, for every 100 people that download the app, probably only 10 will ever open it. Wow. And then probably only one will get beyond the first day. So the, the attrition yeah. rate is incredibly high. Yeah. We're, we're talking about you know, trying to motivate people and engage people to, to do the learning activities. Um, and these simple gamification elements are, are the most commonly used, but there's much more to it than that. When you look at you know, really successful commercial games, they, they, don't, they don't work just by you playing against the computer and getting levels and scores, not for most people. The most mm-hmm. successful games involve um, narrative elements. There's a story which you follow or a quest mm-hmm. or a challenge. Mm-hmm. So that's a fundamental part of, of gamification seen more broadly. And they also involve any successful game these days involves elements of social interaction. Okay. Yeah. So it's, you know, when you're playing World of Warcraft or whatever it might be, it's, it's the interaction between you and other players that keeps you there. So the social interaction could be considered an element of gamification because it's, it's inspired from those same sources. And those are much, much more uh, effective as long-term motivators than badges, points, and leaderboards. Um, and, of course, if there's social interaction and it's about language learning, there's a possibility they may learn from that too. We mentioned young learners and secondary, but would you say, I mean, obviously a lot of adults play video games and maybe play games online as well, but personally as someone who doesn't do that, do you think that gamification also applies to adults in maintaining their interest or would you say not so much it's difficult to generalize Mm. Um, when we're talking about age cohorts 
I mean, it's interesting when you, especially during the, the pandemic, when you read the statistics about how many adults have been playing games of one kind or another, and it, it's gone up quite dramatically. But there are clearly people who, who have no interest in playing games of any kind at all. Uh, and none of this is going to make much difference to them at all. So the, the, the rewards, the points, badges, leaderboards, this stuff uh, are never going to work with everybody. I mean, I'm, I'm a sucker. I, I love that stuff. And I'll end up trying to get points um, even even though I'm wasting hours and hours of my life doing it. But what we do know is for everybody that narratives will help maintain interest and engagement and the social interaction will as well. So it doesn't have to be a game. And there's a difference between gamification and, and game-based education. Yeah. People using, I don't know, something like Minecraft as a way of learning English. So gamification is taking elements from the games and importing them into learning systems. And would you say that smaller ed tech companies are doing sort of more gamification in their apps than the major publishers at the moment? I'm, I'm not sure. Again, we can generalize. S- smaller companies have yeah. talked about this uh, LearnMatch uh, app that I've been working on for the, the last four or five years now. Um, yeah, the gamification is absolutely standard. With the bigger publishers, what they often are doing is um, they can't it, – it's very difficult to introduce gamif- gamified elements into huge platforms that are intended for everybody all around the world. Yeah, you, you think of a course. I mean, any any major course um, used in secondary schools, it's also going to be used by adults. So mm-hmm. it can be used by anybody from the age of about twelve or thirteen up to the age of I don't know sixty something like me. So how can you have a system which is going to appeal to all of those? So it's it's difficult to have a system which really works um, for everybody, and uh, it may also be that the competitive element is simply not something which is appropriate in some school contexts. Mm-hmm. But what you do find the big publishers doing is they, they are also developing other more standalone apps and games. Um, as They use them often as marketing tools, and these will always have game, gamification elements. You yeah. know, I don't know, little games for younger learners where they, they, they practice language of a particular situation. But it is standalone from, from the main course. And integrating this into the course is uh, technically rather difficult. Mm, yeah, I can imagine. So what do you see for the future of adaptive learning or gamification in ELT? What do you think is next? Well, I mean, we talked about testing. The, the, the use of adaptive technology and testing is going to just become absolutely standard and normalized. And, and non-adaptive tests, I suspect, are likely to disappear sooner or later. The, mm-hmm. issue, the issue there is in, in school systems where, oh, I don't let's say a relatively small country, which wants to have its own exam system, does it have the resources to actually develop tests of this kind? So there may be pressure on them to carry on with, with written tests, which are non-adaptive. But I think that the, the big, high-stakes, international tests of proficiency will be more and more using adaptive technology. Yeah. In terms of learning, I'm not sure that, um, you know, however much we, we can optimize the way that people use English grammar in use or, or, or these kinds of materials, I'm not sure it's really going to help anybody very much. And, and I think there are too many variables anyway. So there, there probably comes a point when there's not much point trying to adapt, personalize this anymore because we're doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. But having said that, there is a very, very clear trend in education globally of um, capturing data. Companies like Pearson, for example, have made a big thing uh, of, of their efficacy measures. Before anything is, is sort of put out into the market, we need to demonstrate that it, that there is learning efficacy in it. I mean, Pearson is just one, but the, all of the others are interested in the same things. And this requires big, big data. And the more that we have students learning online, um, the more that we can capture this data of various kinds. 
So there's this sort of trend towards requiring schools and course providers to be more accountable. You know, we don't spend any money unless it can be demonstrated through data that there is some efficacy behind it. So I think Mm -hmm. that the the data collection will continue uh, for political reasons more than anything else, political and economic reasons. And Mm -hmm. then researchers will be looking for ways of how can we actually use this data in a meaningful and in an ethical way. But the the ethics are complicated and the the applications um, are moving ahead of our ethical understanding of what's involved. I mean, how many teachers around the world using Google Classroom really have a full understanding of what that means in terms of the data uh, that's being generated by their learners? Yeah. So I I, I don't know. Um, It it may be that with natural language processing, we could get a more adaptive approach to language production, speaking and writing. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's going to be limited so I don't know. I, I'm expecting to see more data, more shift online. And um, we're talking about there is a shortage of uh, English language teachers around the world. Uh, and so one of the solutions that's seen is um, shifted all online. Mm-hmm. And if we can personalize it online through adaptive technologies, so much the better. But I don't think that we're ever going to see much in the way of really, truly, meaningfully personalized language learning through platforms. Yeah. And where can people uh, find out more about you and your adaptive learning um, insights and research that you've done as well? Well, there's a there's a link which you'll, you'll, you'll put up. So this is a this is I forget what the paper is. It's called something like personalized learning through adaptive technology. And it's a paper that I wrote for Cambridge University Press a couple of years ago. It's free. So it's, it's a free downloadable thing. It's about 15, 16 pages long. And that's probably the the, the first place to go. If people wanted to find out more, they could go to my blog. I mean, the blog is called Adaptive Learning in ELT, but it's not really about adaptive learning. It's about lots of other things. I've been writing recently quite a lot about um, um, other trends or buzzwords of, of the year, things like mindfulness or mindset, social emotional learning issues. I'm writing about all sorts of things. Uh, th- there is a reason because these are actually connected to technology. Uh, so people could explore more there. But I think that the, the, the paper that, I, that you'll put the link up to is the best place to start. And that's then got a bibliography and, and links to other places. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your expertise. And um, as I say, I'll share the links to your research paper for CUP and the link to your blog as well. So people can find out some more information. Okay. Well, good luck with your podcast. Thank you so much. So thanks so much for listening to today's show. We definitely learned a lot and we can't wait to hear your takeaways from the episode. So if you'd like to get in touch or you do have an idea for an upcoming show, do feel free to email us at info at eltcpd.com. Remember to also like, subscribe and follow us on Instagram, YouTube and LinkedIn for podcast updates and the latest ELT job posts. Until next time, bye for now.